Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. So this past Saturday was the Women's March in Washington, D.C. I think there were maybe some other marches around different parts of the country, but most of the activity was uh, here in Washington, D.C. And most of the activity culminated right around the Supreme Court, where you had pro-life advocates and those in support of Amy Coney Barrett. They were standing on the steps of the Supreme Court, and as those Women's March marchers came by, uh, many of them stopped to either talk with those and in some cases yell at those holding pro-life signs. Uh, it's kind of a, a wild scene to behold. Lauren, what, what are your thoughts on the event? You know, Virginia, if it wasn't for this podcast and, you know, really following the Women's March, I don't know if I would have even known that it actually happened this weekend. I, I didn't see it get too much coverage. But, you know, I think it's unfortunate. I think both of these groups have the right to go out and be in front of the Supreme Court and, you know, be safe with COVID, but, you know, make their views known. And, you know, the fact that the Women's March was so rude to these pro-life women, I mean, it's just, it's disappointing. You know, the whole point of the show is that women should be empowering one another and respecting one another. And especially when we're in such a divisive time in American history, it really should be women who who look at one another and say, you know, like we care for one another. And especially in this time in American history, when everyone is so divisive, women more than you know anyone should be the ones to stand up and say, you know what, like I love my fellow woman for who she is and, and not, you know, because of what party she belongs to. So Virginia, I hope this is just a one-off thing and I'm sure as we get closer to the confirmation, these protests will only ramp up. But I really just hope we don't see this again. Yeah, Lauren, you're right. You raised the point that it was in some ways a a quieter march, I guess, as far as how it was, how broadly it was reported on. Uh, I heard very, very little about it. um, And really the only person I saw reporting on it on Twitter was our friend over at the Daily Caller, Shelby Talcott. Shout out to her. She has been covering so much of the craziness over the summer and fall with riots. And if you don't follow her, you should because she has some crazy videos that she puts up on Twitter. But yeah, definitely interesting to see those interactions uh, between all of these different women in front of the Supreme Court who obviously have very different views. Um, And we do want to mention that today is the day that uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to vote on whether or not to move Amy Coney Barrett's nomination out of committee. And at that point, then it turns over to the full Senate so that then they have the opportunity to hold a vote. So we'll be sure to keep you all in the loop in the coming days and weeks of, of what is happening on that front but it is looking very positive for Amy Coney Barrett, and we are, are so excited for just how qualified she is. And she she is going to be a phenomenal Supreme Court justice. So hopefully, hopefully we're going to see this vote take place without any major issues coming up. All right, Lauren, we have a great show planned. So let us know, what do we have on deck for today? Of on today's Problematic Women, we have some good news to share with you in the battle for women's sports. Doreen Denny, Vice President of Government Relations for Concerned Women for America, joins us to discuss how you can be a part of the fight to protect the future of our sports. 
Plus, Heritage Foundation education policy analyst Mary Claire Anselm debunks a recent Teen Vogue article claiming that private schools need to be abolished. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. Women's sports is an issue that we've followed very, very closely right here on Problematic Women. Many of you may remember that last year, the Daily Signal produced a documentary about a female track athlete, Selena Soul. Selena lives in Connecticut, and she lost her spot to compete in the New England Track and Field Championship because two biological men took two of those eight spots. Selena's story sadly has been repeated multiple times across the country where we see biological men who identify as women wanting to compete and competing in women's sports and thus women wind up losing opportunities, uh, losing uh, (laughs) really the ability to win often. Um, But today we're really excited that there's been some good news on this forefront and in this fight for women's sports. And here to help us break down that good news and more of just the whole situation in this battle around women's sports is Doreen Denny. She's the Vice President of Government Relations for Concerned Women for America. Doreen, welcome to Problematic Women. Thank you, Virginia. Glad to be here. So I want to begin first with kind of this big picture situation in the fight for women's sports. We've seen an increase over the past several years of biological men who identify as women entering women's sports. And Concerned Women for America, you all have really been on the forefront of this fight. So just give us first a a quick overview of how you all have seen the women's sports issue unravel over the past several years. Sure. Well, you know, I think we have to recognize that in uh, 2016, the Obama-Biden administration actually put in place a policy. They signaled out to all schools across America that sex in federal law, federal education law under Title IX would be based on gender identity, not just biological sex. And that affected everything from facilities to sporting programs and everything. Many states had followed suit or even led the way in this regard. And so we started seeing a trend where for individuals who are identifying as the opposite sex, they were looking for opportunities to participate in sports. And certainly in the case where you have biological males competing against women, their physical advantage, which is physiological, it starts from birth, actually, from in the womb, the differences between male and female bodies, started showing up in terms of competition and winning in competition. So I think Selena Soul was the first kind of case that really landed on a national landscape to give people an awareness of what was happening. And at the same time that was going on, the Equality Act was being debated in Congress, which again would have redefined sex to include gender identity, thereby protecting uh, a class based on perception of who you see yourself as being instead of biological reality. And that law that, well, it's not a law, thankfully, but the Equality Act proposal would include education and federal civil rights rules around education. 
So this is where we found that we had to start to step in and get serious. Title IX was a law that was passed in 1972, 48 years ago. And it really paved the way to ensure that women and men had equal educational opportunities and benefits, including in sports. So we had a participation rate that's been 10 times what it used to be in 1972, because it's gone up 1,000% for high school females to be in athletics. Same way in the college level, the participation has exploded. So here we are in a position now where we're saying, well, women are going to have fewer opportunities to really achieve because they're now going to have unfair competition on the playing field. Okay, so I want to get in a little bit more to to Title IX because I think that is such an important element of this argument and this fight because like you said, Title IX, it was established so that there would be these equal opportunities for men and women. And for years, that created incredible benefit. Like, like you said, we saw this increase of women participating in sports. So uh, there was a university, Franklin Pierce University in New Hampshire. Uh, they have been allowing biological men who identify as women to compete in women's sports. Concerned Women for America, you all saw what was happening at the university, and you filed a civil rights complaint with the U.S. Department of um, Education Office for Civil Rights. And you essentially argued, you know, what Franklin Pierce University is doing is in direct violation of Title IX. So just explain a little bit further what was, what was happening at the university and what led you all to take action specifically uh, on this case. Sure. Yes. And this was going on about the same time that Selena was experiencing what she was experiencing. So we saw at the college level, the same thing happening. And really what became the national awareness on that was that a national NCAA track title in women's sports was given to a biological male who just smoked the competition. And, you know, at that point we said, okay, we have the certainty of federal civil rights law to ensure that sex discrimination does not happen against women, okay? This is a discrimination issue. And so we have to challenge that. We have to be able to challenge that under federal law. So we did file a civil rights complaint with the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights, saying that on the basis of what's happened at Franklin Pierce University with an individual receiving a national title, a biological male in women's sports, that's just patently unfair and in violation of a law that is supposed to be protecting women on the basis of sex binary distinction, male and female. And so, you know, we were so grateful to be able to have an opportunity or an outlet to express that as an organization because we're a public policy organization, the largest in the country, representing women of all kinds of walks of life. And to see the landscape start shifting in this way, it only was going to get worse. And so our case was just resolved. Um, We just heard about it last week. And we realized that, uh, you know, what the Department of Education determined was that, yes, in fact, what Franklin Pierce University did with its uh, transgender policy was a violation of Title IX. And the thing to understand is that policy reflects the NCAA policy. It reflects many policies that universities have across the country. And because of what the NCAA has done and even the International Olympic Committee and the U.S. Olympic Committee. So we're hoping that this case really does send the kind of warning signal to universities and colleges that they have a responsibility under federal civil rights law to ensure equal educational opportunities for women in sports. And that is based on sex. It's not based on gender identity. 
Well, a huge thank you to you all and, and the work that you're doing at Concerned Women for America, because this is such a, a critical victory that you all have, have just seen come through. So I want to ask you just a little bit more about that. I mean, what do you think this, this one victory at this really small university in New Hampshire, what does that mean for this, this larger fight really over the future of women's sports? Well, I think it's a starting point, certainly at the college athletic level. I think at the high school level, we've also seen sort of the resolution of the, the complaint against the Connecticut State Athletic Association and the high schools. But understand that, you know, in our case, what the resolution was that the university agreed and, and submitted it to the ruling, but they're not happy about it, right? So, and they think that they're on, you know, that they should be able to continue their policy because the NCAA has that policy. We have a, a sister complaint, I'll call it, uh, with the University of Montana for a similar situation that just occurred this year with a, an individual in track, again, that won the Big Sky Conference Championship in the mile. Again, similar facts with three years this individual had competed on the men's team and then made the transition to compete on the women's team. So we're hoping that the resolution of that complaint might compatibly provide the recognition of that under civil rights law, Title IX, at the federal level, any college or university that receives federal financial assistance from the government, and frankly, that's pretty much every college in America, whether it comes through student financial aid, where it comes through research or any kind of other contracts and grants, that, that they have a responsibility to preserve the original intent of Title IX that is based on biological sex, not on gender identity. So obviously, I mean, you all are, are still in the thick of this. You have this other kind of situation that's, that's pending. Um, do you think that this ultimately will be an issue that may end up rising to the level of the Supreme Court? It's possible. You know, I think it's really interesting to recognize what happened with the Bostock versus Clayton County case, which did extend protections based on transgender status in the employment context. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, asked during the oral arguments whether or not this case would apply in the case of Title IX. She asked that to the plaintiffs, or the defendants, I think, in that case. And they said, no, that that's a separate situation. Title IX is a separate law on this and um, is sex-based. And so I think that there's already been a signal from the Supreme Court in this case. I mean, I think it's up for debate and that we're seeing some courts take the Bostock versus Clayton County result and interpret it to Title IX. Uh, I think that the administration who's, uh, you know, running the federal government maybe has, will have a role to say in this um, because this administration clearly made a very definitive analysis that was based on the law and precedent that Title IX must be based on biological sex. We think that's really secure in some regard, but then who knows if we have a different administration, they might go and just reinterpret the law. And, it, you know, I think that would then create a court challenge that could make it to the Supreme Court as well. So I think the courts are definitely in the middle of this right now. They are already at the state level and will continue to be. And uh, the Supreme Court may need to make a ruling of that as well in the future. And do you have a sense, you know, across America of how many, um, whether it be high schools or, or universities, 
right now have policies that say yes you know if if a biological male comes to us and says i identify as a female we will allow them to compete in women's sports or is that something that we've kind of repeatedly seen that you know when those situations happen that then universities kind of decide um, you know okay with this specific case we will take this course of action or this course of action yeah, some, some may have definitive policies, others may just be like you said, if confronted. Um, I don't have data on that, but what I will tell you is that the NCAA, uh, which is a member institution, you know, all of these colleges and universities, uh, it, whether it's division one, two, and three, um, many most associate that with that um, organization. Uh, their policy since that was established in 2011, and I should say that again, that kind of set a lot in motion here, uh, even at that point, um, does allow for trans inclusion uh, based on, uh, you know, gender identity for, for athletes um, in categories of women's sports. So, you know, the problem here is that we're, we're calling this female athletics, we're calling it women's sports. You know, if, if our argument is against the institutions, against this institutional sexism that's being redefined here. Um, it, you know, athletes are playing by the rules here, the rules that have been set. And so we do think that it's an issue of policy. It's an issue of, of law. It's an issue of civil rights protections for women. And we hope that that is going to prevail um, and that the the NCAA, which is currently reviewing its policy, is going to see this result what happened with Franklin Pierce University and recognize that they're on the wrong side of this issue right now because they're forcing universities in many cases by having a policy that they do to essentially violate federal law. Have you spoken with some of these women who have been forced to compete um, alongside or, or with biological men? Well, we've talked with Selena Soul and we and some of her teammates. I haven't talked to the the college athletes. There are cases right now pending, uh, one in Idaho and others that are actually being represented with um, athletes who have experienced this. But I would say that one of the things that got us motivated into this as an organization is a call from a mother in Georgia who had called the Women's Sports Foundation, who called the National Organization for Women, explaining the experience that her daughter was having, an experience like this, competing on an unfair playing field with somebody that was of the opposite sex. And she said, uh, you're the only women's rights organization that's, that's listening to what I have to say. My daughter came to me and said, mom, if this is the way it's going to be, what's the point? And that kind of defeatism that young girls are already experiencing on the playing field is the thing that we have to stop because their opportunities for future, so much of leadership and, and ability and success have come through college and, and athletics, not just at the college level, but at the high school level, all the way down. And that's why it's so important that we preserve the opportunity for girls to play on a fair playing field against athletes of the same sex. And that's what we're fighting for. Oh, <laughs> I love it. Yes. <laughs> uh, so good. No, truly appreciate you all and how you are <laughs> just really persisting on this issue because it's so, so critical. Um, I, I want to bring up, there is a great way right now that women can get involved and that can, can be making their voice known in, in support of women's sports. Can you, can you just share with us a little bit about how we can be getting involved? 
I don't know if, if you're referring to what's happening with Selena's run right now, because we are in the middle of it this week. And, yes, and what's yes, so I exciting am. is Save Women's Sports, which was founded by a, a best seltzer who uh, experienced this as a USA power lifter in competition. And it, it sort of spurred her on to say, I've got to fight for the rights of women uh, in sports and female athletes. And so one of the projects that they're doing that's underway right now is Selena's Run. It's, the, it's what we're calling the first annual. And you can participate in any number of ways. It's a virtual kind of marathon or 1K, 2K, 5K, 10K, whatever you want to do. You can go to savewomensports.com. You can sign up even just to support and be a, a cheerleader, which is what I did. And, and so what we're trying to do is raise awareness uh, through this project of the importance of standing up for female athletes. And when one of the things that just happened in the kickoff was a woman ran with the Save Women's Sports flag, an, a, an entire marathon in front of the NCAA headquarters, around and around the headquarters in wow. Indianapolis, Indiana to show our concern about what's happening in women's sports and also to say, this is why you need to pay attention. There are women out there who are fighting for their rights in, uh, of, to fair play. And so um, that kicked off. If you go to that website, you'll see some coverage of that run that happened over the weekend marathon. And then you can join in to be a part of this effort um, and, and show your support. Wow. So exciting. I love it. And I love that it's going to be an annual thing. Uh, we'll be sure to put the link in, in the show notes today for the Save Women's Sports uh, website so you can find out more and find out how you can get involved. Um, but before we let you go, I want to ask, how, how can our listeners follow your work and the work of Concerned Women for America on this issue? Sure. Well, if you go to concernedwomen.org in our current topics, we have a standing with female athletes tab that's trying to keep up to date on all the activity and, and action that's occurring. Uh, you know, we are working with a broad partnership uh, across the spectrum. I mean, it's it's not political. It's not in, in any regard. We're, we're joined together. Uh, we have different perspectives on different issues, but for a singular cause, which is to ensure that Title IX is preserved for female athletes. And so do join us, concernedwomen.org, to follow us there. Um, we'll hope to have better, more good news in the future. Uh, we are grateful to the Department of Education for standing with us in this. We hope that they can continue to push forward in some, in, in, with some of our complaints. We also would suggest that you let your senators and House members know to, to support the Protect Women and Girls in Sports Act that's been introduced in both the House and the Senate, and there's a way to take action with that through our website as well. Fantastic. Doreen, thank you so much for your work on this critical, critical issue, and we just really appreciate you joining the show today. Thanks for having me. Now stay tuned because up next, we chat with Heritage Foundation Education Policy Analyst Mary Claire Amsalom about Teen Vogue's recent op-ed attacking private schools as racist institutions. But first, I want to tell you all about a brand new Heritage Foundation product that I think you're all going to find really helpful. It's called the Citizen's Guide to Fight for America. Each week, Heritage will send you a list of action items so you can take on one of the major issues facing our country. I'm sure I'm not the only one who hears about the issues facing our nation and asks, okay, but what can I do about it? And the Citizen's Guide was created to answer that very question. 
To sign up and learn more about how you can fight for our nation's future, visit heritage.org slash 2020. From there, you can sign up to join an army of concerned citizens in the fight to defend our American ideals. So again, that website is heritage.org slash 2020. It is such a pleasure to welcome Heritage Foundation Education Policy Analyst Mary Claire Amslum back to Problematic Women. Mary Claire, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so Teen Vogue, they they are always putting out some new woke argument, and their latest is in the form of an op-ed titled, We Don't Need private schools. So this article argues the private schools were really just a product of families who, during the desegregation of public schools, did not want to send their children to school with African-American students. And that today, private schools are just uh, furthering racism, furthering white privilege. So the author takes a really long time to tell their own story of you know, going to really an impoverished inner city public school before transferring to a private school where they encountered what they call whiteness that was, quote, responsible for the racist behaviors of my classmates. So Mary Claire, let's unpack this argument a little bit, um, beginning with this idea that private schools were birthed out of racism, out of white parents not wanting their children to attend a desegregated school. We know that there were instances of these sort of like white flight schools, but is it really fair to say that, you know, private schools are are directly this product of racism? Yeah, wow. There there's so much to unpack there. I almost don't even know where to begin. <laughs> but we've we've we hear this this argument all the time that there's somehow the, this deeply racist undertone behind uh parents wanting to choose better schools for their children. Um and, and it's it's really permeated a lot of these these arguments that that surround school choice. So, I mean, let's just take a step back for a second and say that uh, the, the notion of the concept of vouchers, the concept of, of, of private school choice, things like that, uh, did not come about during uh, the, the uh, integration uh, era of the Brown v. Board of Education. So that, that's the argument, is that as a result of Brown v. Board of Education, when schools uh, were forced to integrate, uh, that this there suddenly became this argument for for private school choice, so that uh, white families could continue to segregate their children by taking them out of the public school system. Uh, the the notion of uh, funding students, not systems, which is something that we hear a lot today, uh, especially during the, the coronavirus lockdown. That's something the that parents are really pushing for. I mean, this argument goes back hundreds of years. Uh, I mean, you can see, uh, you know, our founding fathers, you know, talk about the. the the, the basic concept that uh, people should be able to, to choose their education. Uh, this did not come about uh, with Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman, uh, in, his, in his writings in Capitalism and Freedom and the, the Role of Government in Education, uh, talks about sort of this modern idea that we have of school choice, of funding students, not systems, this idea that the government can be the financer of education but not necessarily the provider um, and so he was sort of the, the father of the modern voucher model that we have today. But he was by no means the person who came up with the, the concept that not all students should be uh, should be educated under the same system. And secondly, the, this Teen Vogue article, 
makes the the troubling argument that private schools have been this arbiter of inequality in our society, that you have these wealthy parents who can opt into the system and and, uh, educate their students in what she admits is a much better education system. And then they become the the ruling members of our society and and those who, who can't afford that are left behind. Well, School choice advocates are saying, yeah, that's a problem. We should give families the funds to do that. We should take the money that that our government is wasting in the public school system that is often far more than private school tuition. So just to put some numbers on it, in D.C., the public education system spends $30,000 per student. Private school tuition is often significantly less than that. So you can save money by giving the money to parents sending them to a much better school. And in that way, all kids can have access to a high quality education. It's exactly the kind of system that that people like myself who are such staunch advocates for school choice want to see happen in our system. So it is a bit of a straw man argument that that, uh, we're seeing people say, you know, this is this huge problem of inequality. We should just get rid of it altogether. Well, shouldn't the problem be with the system that's underserving students? That's where the heavy scrutiny should be, rather than looking at these private schools that are by and large doing very well by students. Well, no, I mean, that is so much so what stuck out to me as I read this article is this author is advocating, you know, that private schools should essentially be abolished all because there is this inequality. So it's sort of this uh, wild way of thinking of, okay, we'll just bring everyone down to this lowest common denominator. If you say the author admits, you know, their experience in public school was terrible and they recognize the issues in public school. So why on earth would we think that that is somehow the solution? Exactly. You know, my dad often says, and I'm sure he stole this phrase from somewhere else, but he says that socialism is shared misery. And that's exactly what we're talking about here is if there, if if not everyone can afford the, the private school system, then there just shouldn't be a private school system and we should bring everyone to the public education system. And, and the pushback on that that you'll hear from uh, those uh, who do not support school choices, they'll say, well, if we force everyone into the public school system, give no one any option to leave, then we will properly fund it. And then we will actually fix the system. Uh, The argument is that we've never been able to fix the system because people aren't invested enough because people have the option to leave. There's a million problems with thinking that way. I I mean, it's it's like, you know, locking someone in a room and saying, you know, we've got to figure this out. And, uh, you know, it rests on the argument that we haven't been properly funding public school, first of all. And as I think I've said on this podcast before, as I think I've said anytime I ever talk about this, is that we have been funding education more and more every year. We've been pouring trillions of dollars into our public education system since the creation of the Department of Education in 1979. And test scores have not been moved at all as a result of our increased investment in public education. So spending more money on education has been the consistent solution that we've heard from those on the left, and it has not moved the needle at all for students. So we need to try something else. And so forcing students into the system and saying, you know, we've got to figure this out. Well, if the if the continued argument is that we need to spend more money, then we will never fix the public education system because that has not been the solution so far. Yeah. So obviously school choice is such uh, an amazing solution for, for many students to have the opportunity to, to go to a charter school or to go to a private school or, or to homeschool. But in the area specifically of public education, are there specific things that that should be done in order to improve the quality of public education 
Um, because like you say, as we've seen, just throwing, throwing money at these schools hasn't helped. Oh, absolutely. There's, there's a million things we could do to improve the quality of education for students who are currently in the system. Um, the first is to get rid of the administrative bloat problem. So as I mentioned, we, we've been funding schools over, like more and more and more every year. If you look at, you know, uh, how like voting patterns, like people consistently vote to fund education because, you know, who doesn't want to fund our schools? That's just something that the American people generally agree with. Uh, and so this gets virtually no political pushback when we want to spend more money on education. That's a very popular thing that people uh, support. Um, however, as I mentioned before, it has not moved the needle. The quality of education has not improved. The achievement gap has not closed. Uh, the uh, the gap between rich and poor has not closed in terms of educational attainment. Uh, and so why is that? It's because... Uh, uh, the administrative bloat in our public school system is soaking up the money that we're continuing to pour into it. And until we solve the administrative bloat problem, we will continue pouring money into a system that's not reaching students and it's not reaching teachers and it's not improving the quality of education. Um, we, we, we have massively overemployed administrators in our public school system to the point where it, it ends up hurting the quality of education because that money is not being spent uh, on the classroom. Uh, the second thing we can do is is change our policies uh, for teachers. We have a, a last-in, first-out policy. Uh, the amount of years that you've spent teaching in school matters a lot more than how good of a teacher you are. Um, because of teachers' unions and because of collective bargaining, uh, we schools are unable to reward good teachers and they're unable to, to uh, properly punish bad teachers. Uh, and so if you're an excellent teacher, there's no real incentive to you for you to continue being excellent. You know, that incentive that we see in virtually every other uh, job in America, uh, teachers don't have that incentive to continue doing well because their pay is simply dependent on the number of years that they've that they've been a teacher. And so that's how you have, you know, of teachers who are not serving students well, uh, continue to, to stay in the public education system. And a principal is relatively uh, strapped in terms of uh, what they can do with that teacher. And, you know, really good teachers teach for a couple of years and then they want to leave because, well, you know, this isn't really worth it to me. I'm doing a really great job, but I'm not getting paid what I'm worth. And so that's a significant problem. And until we, we fix that problem, we're not going to create a system where we attract and retain high quality teachers for our students. Wow. This is such a critical issue, Mary Claire, and I know that it is uh, very close to your heart and for many of our listeners is something that they're passionate about. So tell us, where can we follow your work on this issue? Sure. So if you go to heritage.org and click on the um, education tab, you'll see um, all of uh, my work and the work uh, of my colleagues who work with me in the Center for um, Education Policy. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at MC Amsalem, uh, and I tweet about this issue quite a bit. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. This is Virginia Allen, host of the Daily Signal podcast. I don't know about you, but YouTube is certainly one of my guilty pleasures. I really enjoy watching short videos on a variety of topics. So I'm always looking for videos that are actually educational and beneficial to me in some way. And the Daily Signal YouTube channel never disappoints. There is so much binge-worthy content from policy and news explainers to documentaries. If you're not driving, go ahead and pull out your phone and subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel so you can be in the know on the issues you care about most. You can also search for the channel by going to youtube.com slash daily signal.
Now it's that time of the week. Once again, my favorite time of the week. Time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to... Megan Kelly. This weekend, I had some time to kill. I was on a flight. So I downloaded this week's Sunday special on the Ben Shapiro podcast. And, you know, I've always admired Megan Kelly and thought she was, you know, just a really amazing woman. But I was just floored by this interview. She talked about her experience at Fox News and how, you know, Roger Ailes was a really complicated guy and, you know, what he did wasn't right, but she just has this, you know, forgiveness and, and purity in her in her heart. And, then, you know, she talked about her stint in NBC and, you know, her being fired and how she looked, you know, on the bright side of that and how she got to spend more time with her children. She hit her views on politics and, you know, our, our current culture and, you know, what she would do if she was the debate moderator for these Trump-Biden debates. And I don't know, I just, it's almost like she was speaking to me in a voice that I don't hear very often in politics, somebody who is sees both sides and is compassionate, but also isn't in a way a weenie. Like she was really passionate about her beliefs and, you know, she wasn't going to be this person who's like, oh, we'll be partisan and they have good ideas and I have good ideas. She was very firm in what she believed, but she was respectful of the other side and just, yeah, I, I just really... You know, I think it's almost kind of weird that we are making an interview on somebody else's podcast or Problematic <laughs> Room of the Week. But this interview just like really touched me. And I, I want to encourage all of our listeners to go over to Ben Shapiro's show and listen to that interview. Lauren, after you told me about it, I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. I'll give a listen. And yeah, I I love hearing people's personal stories. And it's so easy. You know, you see this talking head on TV for years and you're kind of like, oh, I know Megan Kelly. But hearing her backstory and, you know, kind of what she went through both in, in her career and, you know, just uh, personal things, it's, it's really powerful to actually kind of pause and realize, wow, like this individual has lived a really incredible life. It's still a pretty young age. And I think just reflecting on some of those lessons that she's learned, uh, it really is a fantastic interview. So definitely encourage you all to listen to that podcast interview on the Ben Shapiro show. So good. But it is now time for our Twitter poll. So I I just thoroughly enjoy these. I love hearing from you all. Love hearing your thoughts, ideas. So be sure to check out these polls. Every week they go up on Thursday, sometime Thursday morning on my Twitter page, Virginia underscore Allen five. Uh, I'll put a link for that in the show notes. But the Twitter poll last week asked you all what your favorite fact was about Judge Amy Coney Barrett. And you all overwhelmingly answered that it was that she's a mom of seven, which I agree is pretty insane. Like she's this impressive legal mind and has seven kids and she just kind of breaks all the molds, all the stereotypes. So gotta gotta appreciate that. But this week, we're going to go a little lighter, a little funner with our poll. And we are asking what your favorite fall pastime is. So we have hiking, football, a good book, or maybe bonfires. I feel kind of torn between hiking and bonfires. I just love being outside in the fall. Lauren, I have a feeling like I know which one you're going to choose. <laughs> No, my team lost for the second time in a row. Oh. At one point, so you know, like 
I just I have this tweet that I tweeted a couple weeks ago, and it says football is stupid, <laughs> and I just keep retweeting it. Every heartbreak that I have. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe maybe a good book then. No, 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 no. it'll be a bonfire. Okay, if it's not football, it's going to be burning stuff. Okay, perfect. Classic. You're not from Florida or anything. <laughs> One time on the show, Virginia, I'll explain. I was the 2009 rope burning champion of my high school. And uh, wait, say that again. One year, I was the well, my senior year of high school. I was the 2009 rope burning champion. Rope burning. Yeah. So what as that in is, a rope is on fire. Yeah. So what they do is they each class has they take two sticks, right, and the sticks are 15 feet up in the air, and they tie a rope between the two sticks. And so the goal is to burn to to create a bonfire that's 15 feet tall in the quickest amount of time, and we won. And <laughs> building a bon a 15 foot bonfire in like three minutes is just you know something that'll stick with you for the rest of your life. That's fantastic. Wow. Yeah. Well, congratulations. That's, that's a good thing Thank to you. be known for. Yeah. You're very resourceful. <laughs> if I was ever like, you know, lost in the woods, I'd want you with me and build a bonfire. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share conservatives need your support in the podcast world and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on spotify soundcloud apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcast it really does make a difference have a great week and we'll be back with you all next week problematic women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the heritage foundation it is a product of the daily signal produced by lauren evans and virginia allen special thanks to our editor-in-chief katrina trinko we produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.